This is Doty Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there, and welcome to another episode of Doty Land from the Madison Isthmus. I'm super glad to have you along. We've got a good show for you today. It is a beautiful, crisp February day here, winter in all of its glory. The skies are clear, the sun is shining a couple of days after Groundhog Day, and though locally the groundhog saw its shadow, so we're destined to have six more weeks of winter, but regardless, this is Wisconsin, so we're all ready for at least six more weeks of winter. On today's show, we're going to really have some interesting tidbits from the Civil War, Abraham Lincoln, and that era of American history. And we have a really wonderful guest today, a Civil War reenactor from Indiana, from the Confederate side of the Civil War reenactment scene. And I got to tell you, when this lady showed up to our house, she didn't just show up to do an interview. She showed up with a dessert, a cake, and I have a sweet tooth. So this was almost an ideal situation. She brought what is known as the Robert E. Lee cake. It's one of the most famous Southern American cakes of all time. And if you don't have a real um, ability to be in the kitchen and to cook, this may seem a little far-fetched, but it takes 12 eggs, half weight in sugar and a half weight in flour to make this wonderful concoction. And she brought it and it was wonderful. The cake is definitely a labor of love given the ingredients in it. And there are so many recipes and so many versions of this in old Southern cookbooks. It isn't really clear to ascertain whether or not Robert Lee actually loved this cake as much as the recipe books would lead one to believe. But regardless, it's a fantastic creation. And you can find the recipe for this cake on the Facebook page for Doty Land. We're going to have the recipe along with all sorts of other information uh, pertinent to today's show, the guest and the topics being discussed. So I hope you tune into that. We also are going to be talking about later, um, after the interview, the book that one president recommended to his successor, which had to do with Abraham Lincoln. Abraham Lincoln is central to today's show. He was, I believe, the most pivotal president in American history. George Washington was also extremely important. Washington left the office after two terms, and that was a very important part of our democratic process. But Abraham Lincoln kept the Union together when those who tried to disturb it or to break it in two did not succeed and could not succeed in Lincoln's view because if democracy couldn't get a handle at success here, where else in the world would it be destined to be successful? Also today, with an election process underway in the United States, I want us to go back to 1860. I want to take you back to Springfield, Illinois. And not just the election, but Abraham Lincoln casting his own ballot in 1860 when his name was on the ballot. I want to take you back to Springfield and to a very pivotal point, I think, in American history, what it says about character and what it says about Abraham Lincoln. And finally today, we're going to conclude this episode with the words from Rolf Waldo Emerson at the time of Lincoln's death. So we have a big show in store for you today. You're going to like it. Stick around. It all begins right after this.
Living history is a fascinating way to understand our nation's past. To talk about that today from Elwood, Indiana, is Mary Beeman. She's a Civil War reenactor from the Confederate side, and we welcome you to the Roundtable and Doty Land. Thank you so very much for having me. So for listeners who are scratching their heads wondering, where is Elwood? How would you explain where you are on the map? 45 minutes north of Indianapolis. So right in the heart of Indiana. That sounds wonderful. It sounds very Midwestern and uh, community-oriented. How many people in Elwood? I wouldn't begin to know. We're considered a small city. All right. Large town, small city. So how does somebody from Elwood say, I want to become a part of living history. I want to become involved with being a Civil War reenactor. Where does one even start down that road? It happened as sort of a fluke. Um, I got a membership for Mother's Day to Connor Prairie, which is a living history museum in uh, Fisher's Noblesville, Indiana. And I went there, and the first weekend I happened to go with my son was the Civil War days. And we started talking, and I asked my son if it looked like something he would be interested in doing, and he said yes. And we sat there and discussed it a little bit more, and I said, well, which side would you be interested in portraying? And we thought, um, because I don't have any relatives, at least at the time I didn't think I had any relatives, um, that would have been participating in the war, we decided to go with my husband's side, and we said the, the Northern, the Yankees, the Union, and so we decided to approach some Yankee soldiers, and that was the beginning of history. And us. you told me uh, before we started this interview that your son has uh, what well, one might say a common name, but it has a rather interesting background associated with it, and why you named your son Grant. My son is named Grant because we named him after Ulysses S. Grant from the Union uh, Army. And in so doing, should I imply that you had an interest either A, in history or in the Civil War in particular, that you would have resonated with Ulysses Grant and the naming of your child? My husband and I were in the Army, and we decided to name my son after famous military characters or men that were very strong with a military background, so he got named after Ulysses S. Grant and Augustus Caesar. That is a fantastic story. I love it. So... Um, You've started on this journey, and so you then were picked up by the Union uh, Regiment or not? No, actually, the way it ended up happening was we approached um, Union Infantry Soldiers. That was the first group of individuals we approached. And we asked them if it was possible for the two of us to become involved, because at the time I didn't see my daughter or my husband participating in there and at the time my son was only 14 years old and in order to go out on the battlefield as an infantry soldier you have to be at least 16 and because he wasn't old enough to carry a rifle onto the field um, there was no place for him and they really didn't have a place that they could logically say where a woman belonged so we decided to continue on our journey to see if there was somebody else because obviously we had seen younger um, children than 16 out on the battlefield in some way, shape, or form, and I had seen women dressed up. So obviously there had to be a way to participate in the hobby. It was just a matter of how. Um, 
and this is where it sort of gets interesting for our family. If we had made a left turn, we would have ended up at a Union artillery unit that was portraying the first Wisconsin artillery, um, and we would have been swept up right away. Um, however, we turned right, and we ended up going and into a field that was occupied by a Confederate infantry unit. And they said absolutely there was a place for my son and for myself as well. Um, they just wanted us to follow up with them at another unit in um, Billy Creek Village in Rockville, Indiana. And that was what the plan was, was that we would um, meet up with that unit at that point. So my son and I, having that locked into place, continued to walk around. And I ended up meeting a wonderful woman named Linda Casey, who I'm still friends with to this day. And I said, how do I make a dress? And she's like, let me tell you how to do this. And she started imparting her knowledge on me. And she showed me and where I could go to find authentic dress patterns. And then she took me shopping in Indianapolis so we could get period appropriate fabric to make the dress as well. And we started going from there. Many years ago, and I, I find you utterly fascinating. Many, many years ago, I was entertaining the idea of becoming a reenactor here in the Madison area. And one of the sort of drawbacks for me was the fact that for the men, the buttons and the whole as you might imagine, uniform had to be very authentic, and it yes. definitely should be. So you've answered one of the questions in relation to women's attire, that it needs to be as meticulous and period-oriented as the uniforms that the men wear on the battle. Absolutely. There, um, we want to make sure that we have the appropriate fabrics, uh, be it linen, wool, cottons. Um, you don't want to have anything that's got uh, polyester in it. Um, I've learned the hard way that that could have been very dangerous and do you want to elaborate on how that might have brought been brought to your attention I've caught on fire twice and during while I've been reenacting once while I was at Connor Prairie later on as a reenactor I had my skirt blow um, into a fire that um, I promptly tried to put out with a two-pronged fork covered in pork grease and one of my um, unit members actually pushed me down on the ground and stomped out the hole in my dress the fire that was burning on my dress and then at another event in Hartford City my dress blew onto some coals that were on top of a Dutch oven and it started burning holes through my skirt and so now I'm known as the woman on fire in my <laughs> unit are there any photos of this I have <laughs> Yes, actually, I do have pictures. I have pictures, yeah. We're going to try to get those pictures and put them up on the Facebook page for Doty Land because uh, that's a great story. Um, I made uh, a terminology error, and I want to uh, have you address it. So I called what you um, have as a regiment, and you refer to it as a unit. So I just want to yes. make sure we're on the same wavelength. The unit is comprised of the people in your reenactment group. Yes, our unit is, um, the unit that I belong to is called Amherst Artillery, and it's based off of an actual Confederate artillery unit that was based out of Amherst County, Virginia. And um, my captain and his wife and his daughter have all 
meticulously done research, have actually visited the area, gone through documents, um, found out about the lives of, of the members of the unit, uh, who was involved. There's actually several descendants of members of Amherst Artillery that follow our unit and keep track of what we're doing and contribute information to the history of the unit so we can share that with the public. Um, it's just, it's, it, it, you don't go into it lightly. There's a lot of research involved with being a reenactor and they've done it to make sure that we're portraying the unit as faithfully as possible. So I have a rather odd question to ask. You are at your home, you get into your vehicle, you back out of your driveway, you're on the road, and it's the 21st century. And you're heading to wherever your reenactment is going to take place. Um, how do you prepare for what you do? Do you have to do a bit of a, a mind game to say, I'm going back, I'm, I'm heading forward to wherever the battle scene or the reenactment is taking place, but in another way, I'm heading back to 1861, 1862, some 156, years ago. Is it easy for you to become the woman in the dress that at times catches on fire? <laughs> it's it's not that bad. Um, the, a lot of the preparation happens before we get in the car. Um, I make sure as I'm packing my um, equipment, and I usually have about a four-page list of things that I need to bring with me, it's, it's definitely a detailed process to throw everything in the trunk in, into the trailer and into the van in the car to get everything packed for everything um, and as I'm doing that I'll go through the steps of laundry and try and review my little notebook that's got notes on things so that I can answer questions as best as I can pertaining to what my character is and then um, uh, the other big thing that I'm involved with is cooking meals and doing meal preparation. And as I'm coming up with ideas of what I'm going to prepare, I'm often doing research to make sure it's like, okay, is this an item that they would have had? Um, there's several websites that you can go to find out if things are historically accurate. Would they have had that at that time frame? So I can check and see. It's like, okay, it would pineapple cake be something that they would have had? Yes or no? Okay, good. I can proceed with this. This will be something that's acceptable for me to bring to this. Um, would these things have been available? Is something seasonal or not? So, because I'd like to bring the seasonal aspect into it as well and show what we would have had. So... It, the preparation happens largely before that. What happens in the car is the mental preparation for the questions that we're going to be asked by the public. Um, because, quite frankly, it scares me sometimes to think of what our school systems have set our public up to think that what happened, who was there and what to expect when they see a reenactment. And I've been asked such a gambit of questions that have just hurt my head, to put it politely. One of the things that uh, I haven't stressed here on uh, Doty Land, because we've, this is only the second podcast, but I think the way we teach American history in our country is most regrettable. I don't think we stress thematically how it's structured and we concentrate sometimes more on dates and people and places rather than larger topics in our history. So um, without getting too much in the weeds on that, uh, but going down where you started with your last response, um, 
kids, young adults, older adults, yes. um, when they come to talk with you, um, should I infer from your last comment that they're dreadfully unaware of our, our past and especially the Civil War? Exactly who the, who the engagements were, even who the major characters were. I've been asked, um, where are the Germans? Where are the tanks? Where are the airplanes? Are you kidding me? No. <laughs> no. Um, it's, there's, there's things that I've come to expect um, just from in the side that I portray. I don't go out on the field because they found out that there were no women on Amherst Artillery, so I'm not allowed to go out on the gun with my husband and my son. However, I stay back at the encampment so I can answer the questions regarding to cooking, cleaning, uh, household life, things of that nature. And also that adds to the authenticity of how it would have been actually at the time. At the time. And exactly. It's like, you know, would my daughter have been allowed in camp? In my case, yes, my daughter would have been there. Um, Sometimes we'll sit there and say that they were visiting for the weekend, which is something that did happen. Um, But... Uh, for the most part, um, we just it, it, we explain the living situations, how we're all one family in one or two tents. This is how we live, and it's like how we're bringing everything with us. Why the captain's wife has so many more nicer things than the rest of us, and we'll and we like we we love to show off what we have in our encampment, and a lot of people don't seem to realize that we want people to come. And visit us where the tents are. And who speaks with you most? Who comes up and engages you in conversation? Uh, young people, teenagers, young adults, older people, such as, well, I'll only say I'm over 40 for my listeners here, but older people, who comes up and addresses you? Most and talks definitely with you? the older people are definitely the ones that come and address us the most. We do participate at school days where the kids are encouraged to ask us questions, and in that situation they ask, but on weekends where it opens up just to the public, it's definitely the older members of the community that will engage with us and ask us questions and find out more and actually sit down with us and talk. So the dress that you wear, the costumes that you wear, and by how you were talking of the types of fabric they're made of, they must be terribly warm. It's actually not as bad as you think. It's cotton, um, is very breathable. Wool is wonderful when it's chilly outside, and you definitely want the other layer of protection. And we're wearing a couple layers of skirts, and we have the flannels, and we'll have a wool uh, wool jacket on us. Um, You definitely appreciate the different fabrics, but it's very breathable. And a lot of times I find myself just as comfortable in what I'm wearing even with a couple of layers on and a corset and all of that, it's, it's it can be surprisingly comfortable. But then at the end of the day, uh, I admittedly, a lot of us women will take off the corsets, go into our wrappers, which is sort of like an eight, uh, 1860s robe, if you will, um, and relax a little bit without the structure. Right. Um, uh so that's not bad. The guys, on the other hand, they like taking off their wool jackets and going down to their shirts and their vests and relaxing a little bit. For them, it's a lot worse. But for the woman, it's not as bad as you would think. In the past, uh, my partner James and I, we have uh, been to some of the different reenactments in the state of Wisconsin. And one of the more memorable, um, and there are many memorable times uh, to be talked about uh, from those uh, reenactments, but one of the most memorable took place on a Saturday night when a dance was held. 
yes. um, after the day's uh, activities where all the people from around the area uh, participated and then some of them stayed some of the visitors stayed and there was this wonderful dance that was held and can you speak have you done something like that and can you kind of for my listeners that have no idea what I'm talking about what how would you describe it Okay, um, usually at larger events, there are um, balls that will often be held. The public is welcome to attend. Uh, they love to have people join in and learn how to do the, the, the various dances, like the Virginia Reel and things of that nature. And they'll call them out. And believe me, there are so many um, reenactors that love to dance and love to share their knowledge. And they will take the public with them and show them how to do the dance moves. At the last reenactment I went to in Hartford City, I was actually looking for a friend of mine um, to see if he could sell us something, and I forgot that he absolutely loves to go to the dances. And I ended up getting pulled by an elderly gentleman out onto the dance floor and trying to hold my skirts up and not trip as we're marching backwards through reels of, and just having a good time. Um, but it, it's something that you find frequently at some reenactments and it's just a great way for the uh, public to actually interact with us on a whole new level and just get to see us let our hair down. Have you ever experienced any instruments from the Civil War era that has actually been used at some of these dances? In Madison here um, several years ago, I probably at this point should say many years ago, uh, probably a decade, um, a church not far from um, where I live um, on the Madison Isthmus had a, a regiment, uh, a band that came in and they used all Civil War instruments, which was amazing. I'm a history buff. It was simply stunning to watch, to hear. Uh, and have you ever had that experience or even no that sounds absolutely fascinating I it, would have loved to have seen that it was something that just kind of stirs your soul because uh, you can just about imagine how it was heard you know as I said like a hundred and like 70 years ago I'm sorry 158 years ago but um, uh, are you also uh, and it comes to mind as you were talking about uh, making food um, do you make Johnny cake no is that an over, is that a stereotypical food that I should get out of my? It's uh, not mind? a stereotypical food. It was definitely done. I I admit I have a southern mama and she made cornbread and I was not impressed with what she <laughs> made and I didn't believe cornbread could be good until my son was in fourth grade and I tried some at a history event that they did celebrating the pioneer days of Indiana and it was like oh, this is what cornbread is supposed to taste like. So um, I'll, I'll do corn fritters, and I will do, uh, I have a really good recipe for caramel, uh, apple upside-down caramel cornmeal cake, but cornbread is, and varieties of cornbread is just not one of those things that I care to prepare. And how about your daughter coming from, uh, the hard work. Uh, I know that uh, in some of your demonstrations, uh, you talk to visitors about using lye soap. And of course, lye soap was something that you as a woman of the early 1860s would probably have made yourself or done a lot of your sewing, a lot of your cooking. I mean, you were the, 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 the woman's role, especially with the man of the house, if you will, out fighting in battles far from home. You were central to keeping the crops, the, the animals fed the house and the family together, does your daughter see the 
the role of women and the hard work that you did and what how does she frame that within the if you will the comforts of life that she lives we really don't touch so much on what the home life was it was just more about what the situation was in the field um traveling and maneuvering with the troops and things like that um Paige uh, largely her role with reenactments is uh, she's done a lot of dishes. She's brought livestock with us and explained taking care of livestock. She was into chickens for a while, so she would bring them around because our captain did have chickens with him. Um, she plays a lot of games and interacts with the youngsters and explains what things would have been like for a youngster. She um, ended up deciding to become a band member at the high school and so we sort of had to step back from reenacting for a while because we wanted her to pursue her um her prospects through the actual school itself and that just there's a lot of time involved with being a, a, a high school band member these days so um she she hasn't grown up she was still a child when she stepped back from it and I would uh, suspect you would encourage people listening to this program, Indiana or Wyoming or New York, wherever they're listening, and where living history can be uh, found within just maybe a few miles or a couple hours from where they live. You would probably say to somebody and uh, take the kids, put them in the car, and take them to living history that's located wherever they are. Absolutely. It's, there's so many things that you can learn, and it's it doesn't matter how many Civil War events I go to. It's every day is a new learning opportunity there is always something that you can learn and find out and it, we've had the opportunity this year to go to Mississippi, which is an 1812 event and there were things that i picked up there and then at harford city again which is another which is uh, one of the major civil war events in indiana um there there's always something to be learned and the big thing i would encourage people to do is go talk to the reenactors don't just go and see the battle and see what happens and see the vendors go into the camps and talk to the people who are in the camps because they have so many stories to share and so much information to impart if you if i mean ask about how they're sleeping ask about what they're cooking because we love to talk about what we're cooking we love to talk about our guns we love to talk about our tents and what we're doing and history of our units there's always something to be learned there and so few people take don't take advantage of the opportunities and the learning ability the learning options that are out there at reenactments well i want to thank you on a couple of levels first of all i want to thank you as a part of living history as a reenactor somebody who is engaging others in understanding history i can't express how much i really genuinely appreciate that because that's something that touches my heart and that you are touching on a part of American history that I find so wonderful to read about, that being the Civil War era, and that you also, uh, Mary Beeman, uh, took time to come to the round table here on the Isthmus for Doty Land. I really genuinely appreciate you taking time to be here. Not a problem. I love being here. Don't you cry, oh Susanna, don't you cry. 
what a fantastic interview with Mary Beeman, and again, thanking her for bringing in a wonderful dessert before the interview. The election year is underway here in the United States, and I would like to take us back to 1860 with the help of the Smithsonian Magazine to the time when Abraham Lincoln cast his ballot. Springfield's actual polling place, set up in a courtroom two flights upstairs at the oblong-shaped Sangamon County Courthouse at 6th and Washington Streets, consisted of two partially enclosed voting windows close beside each other, one for Democrats and one for Republicans. It was a peculiar arrangement in the view of the correspondent from St. Louis, but one that had been practiced in Springfield for several years. A voter had only to pick up the pre-printed ballot on his choice outside and then ascend the stairs to announce his own name to an election clerk and deposit the ballot in a clear glass bowl. This was secret in name only, voters openly clutching their distinctly tinted, ornately designed forms while waiting in line signaled precisely how they intended to vote. The system all but guaranteed bickering and ill feelings. In this rolling atmosphere, it was hardly surprising that Lincoln had replied most defensively to a neighbor about how he planned to vote. For Yates, he said, Richard Yates, the Republican candidate for governor of Illinois. But how vote on the presidential election, the bystander persisted, to which Lincoln replied, well, by ballot, leaving onlookers all laughing. Until Election Day afternoon, Lincoln's law partner, William Herndon, was convinced that Lincoln would bow to the feeling that the candidate for a presidential office ought not to vote for his own electors and cast no ballot whatsoever. At about 3.30 that afternoon, Lincoln will go to the courtroom, and the following is how the Smithsonian Magazine reported it. A New York Tribune reporter on the scene confirmed that all party feelings seemed to be forgotten, and even the distributors of opposition tickets joined in the overwhelming demonstrations of greeting. Every Republican agent in the street fought for the privilege of handing Lincoln his ballot. A throng followed him inside, John Nicolay reported, pursuing him in dense numbers along the hall and up the stairs into the courtroom, which was also crowded. The cheering that greeted him there was even more deafening than in the street and once again came from both sides of the political spectrum. And here is where character matters and why I want to call attention to this election of 1860. After he urged his way to the voting table, Lincoln followed ritual by formally identifying himself in a subdued tone, Abraham Lincoln. Then he deposited the straight Republican ticket after first cutting his own name and those of the electors pledged to him from the top of his pre-printed ballot so he could vote for other Republicans without immodestly voting for himself. after the presidential election, outgoing President Bill Clinton was asked by a reporter to name one book that the incoming president, George W. Bush, should read. He said it would be Lincoln by David Herbert Donald, and I would very much agree. The book was published in 1995. This meticulously researched book gives insight into the life and mind of Abraham Lincoln. I've always admired Lincoln. 
He's been my favorite president. He is the most consequential president in this republic's history. This book, for me, humanized Lincoln and in so doing made me admire him even more. The political tightrope that Lincoln navigated as he struggled to hold the Union together while at the same time balancing the differing political priorities of his senior advisors and members of his cabinet is a lesson that all presidents should read and emulate. For those today who insist that the Civil War was about states' rights, well, Donald makes it absolutely clear that the root cause of the war was slavery. It's a book I would highly recommend. The link to this book and all other topics covered on today's episode can be found at the Facebook page, Dodyland. I ask you become a friend. I would like to close out this episode with something that was written by Ralph Waldo Emerson. It was a funeral homage to President Abraham Lincoln. He wrote the following. Here was place for no holiday magistrate, no fair-weather sailor. The new pilot was hurried to the helm in a tornado. In four years, four years of battle days, his endurance, his fertility of resources, his magnanimity were solely tried and never found wanting. There, by his courage, his justice, his even temper, his fertile counsel, his humanity, he stood a heroic figure in the center of a heroic epoch. He is the true history of the American people in his time. Step by step, he walked before them, slow with their slowness, quickening his march by theirs, the true representative of this continent, an entirely public man, father of his country, the pulse of twenty millions throbbing in his heart, the thought of their minds articulated by his tongue. 